This episode of The Candor Frame is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. We also have the support of LensRentals.com, the largest online camera rental house in the U.S. They carry the most popular brands and models of cameras, lenses, and anything you need for video, lighting, post-processing, and more. Whether you need something for a one-time assignment or want to test it out before you buy, LensRentals.com is there to help. Explore their extensive inventory and save 10% on your first order when you sign up for their newsletter at LendRentals.com forward slash newsletter. There are many photographers who have made a name for themselves as rock and roll photographers. However, there is one name that rises above the rest, and that's Jim Marshall. Even if you don't recognize his name, you've seen his images of Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Miles Davis, and other seminal figures of jazz and rock and roll. A photographer is lucky if they've created a single iconic image. Jim produced dozens, if not hundreds. His work and life are explored in a new documentary titled Show Me the Picture, The Story of Jim Marshall. It features appearances by today's guest, Amelia Davis, who owns and manages the photographer's estate following his death in 2010. Amelia not only served as his assistant for years, but also became a close personal friend who continues to promote his work and his legacy. This is Ebody and X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for asking. I appreciate it, too. That's... I really enjoyed the documentary. Oh, and, thank you. Uh, it was really good, and I have, I have some questions about it because uh, well, I'll, I'll get into the questions later. The show, this show's been around for fifteen years. Oh wow! And Jim was one of the people I was interested in interviewing, but I didn't have the courage <laughs> to reach out with him. I had heard so much about his reputation that I was intimidated even to just send out an email. Oh, um, <laughs> today I would have done it, but back then I was just starting. Oh, and, yeah. You know, so it was I, I, I wasn't I wasn't as confident of, of my skills as I am as I am today. So I'm kind of, but this I think will make up for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You get to. Yeah, I always joke and I say I'm Jim Marshall and drag. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So, so feel feel at ease. <laughs> So you talked about how you met Jim at a party, um, but anyone who's heard of Jim or seen of Jim um, knows immediately that he's a character. And yeah, what was your first impression of him when he came up to you? Well, when Jim, I, I talk about this in uh, the documentary, but when I first met Jim, I had no idea who Jim was because I went to UC Davis for a BA in art, and we studied. I studied photography, and the photographers we studied were, you know, Helen Levitt and Carte Bresson. And so, 
Jim, I just really didn't know who he was. I went to uh, my best friend's 30th birthday party and there was this little man with a like around his neck and he shuffled over to me and he kind of said, hi, you know, and I, I said, hi, and he goes, um, I'm Jim Marshall. And I said, hi, I'm Amelia Davis. Just thinking it was just a man who came up to me and said, hello. And, uh, and then he said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a photographer. I said, what do you do? And he smiled and he said, I'm a photographer. And we started talking and, um, at the time, I was working on a book about breast cancer survivors because my mother had breast cancer. And so in going through the journey with my mother, this was way back in 94, like 94. And there was not a lot out there about breast cancer. And so um, I really felt there was a need for a photographic book. And I was talking to Jim about that. And he was very interested. And he said, I have a lot of friends who have had breast cancer. And so you know, we, we got into a really great conversation. And then he said, where do you live? And it turned out that I lived a block away from him in San Francisco. And, uh, and then he looked at me and he goes, are you gay? <laughs> I said, yes, I am. And he goes, oh, I'm always attracted to gay women or married women. And I looked at him and I said, that's your problem, not mine. And he laughed and he said, I think we're going to be really good friends. And so uh, he gave me a call the next day and he said, I really liked you. You want to meet for coffee? And I said, sure. And uh, we met for coffee and he said, I need an assistant. Do you want to be my assistant? And I said, sure. And so we went over to his apartment and opened the door. And I, we call it the hallway of shame. I mean, it's like one iconic photograph after another down this huge, long hallway. And I saw Jimmy burning the guitar. I saw the Beatles last concert at Candlestick Park. I saw Bob Dylan and I just was mortified. And I said, oh, my God, I had no idea that was you. And he laughed and he said, that's why I liked you. And, uh, and it was from then on that I worked for Jim and we became really great friends and until the day he died in 2010. He, he said that he, that he knew you would be really good friends. Did you feel the same? I, <laughs> I liked him, but I didn't know him that well until I started working with him. So um, it wasn't until I started working with Jim and, and uh, you know, Jim could be explosive. He was, you know, he wasn't even tempered. He could be, he was a very complex man. So if he loved you, he loved you. If he hated you, he hated you. And there was really nothing in between. And he did not have a problem lashing out and telling you how he felt. But what he didn't expect was that I would lash back at him. So if he would yell at me and, and yeah. say a profanity, you know, I'd just throw it back at him. And uh, he was shocked, but I think he respected that um, because he was not used to people yelling back at him and, and um, kind of putting boundaries around. <laughs> I haven't heard much in terms of his upbringing. What, what, what do you know of him in terms of his, you know, his, his story well before he became a photographer, because I know his parents were immigrants and, you know, he was born in Illinois. And, but yeah. did he share much in terms of, you know, that past? He shared little bits. He really was very private about his upbringing, but the few, few times he did share with me, you know, he, he was, his parents migrated, immigrated to the United States. He says he's a Syrian, which is basically Irani Iranian. Um, so his mother and his mother's um, sister fled Iran and came to the U.S. 
and um, met his dad in Chicago. And his dad was pretty much Assyrian. He was not Assyrian. He was a, oh God, Armenian. I'm sorry. So Iranian and Armenian. Armenian. And he was a house painter. And they had Jim, but when Jim was about two, they moved to California because there was a really big Armenian um, community in California. And so they came, they immigrated here, came over here and, and uh, lived in San Francisco. And basically Jim grew up in San Francisco from when he was, you know, two years old. But his mom washed clothes and his dad painted houses and his dad spoke 14 languages. So he was a really intelligent guy, mm -hmm. but his dad was an alcoholic. So the few times Jim did talk about his dad, he would be very angry about his father because he was abusive. His dad left, so he was really brought up with by his mother and his aunts. So, and I think he always felt like an outsider. Um, and he would tell me that because, you know, he wasn't blonde, blue-eyed, white-skinned. He looked, he looked like he was foreign. And so he always, I think, felt like he was in the outside looking in all the time. And because of that, I think that allowed him to really have empathy and feel for others. So particularly the African-American jazz musicians who were, when Jim was photographing them in the early 60s, um, could really relate to them. And they um, built a lot of trust with each other. Um, and I think they allowed him into their worlds because he was an outsider also. And um, that is how he was able, I think he used his camera as a tool to really share with the world what he was seeing and feeling that he couldn't actually maybe articulate, but he, he showed it through his photography. I think a lot of photographers, especially people who feel like outsiders, use the camera as a means of becoming a part of. Yes. Right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that the photographs reveal any sense of intimacy. And right. he, his did. And you speak about this sense of empathy that, that he had. And I think that that really is really key because I think that despite his sort of gruffness and his reputation yes that he, he you, and you can tell me but i i think that that he with you know with certain people was open to be vulnerable enough that yes. he could make the connections with people yes. who otherwise would, would you know be very reluctant to open themselves up to a photographer do you Absolutely. think that that was part of what what was the special skill that he had Absolutely, I do agree. I think um, Jim was also could be very chameleon-like, so he could um, be in a situation and he could kind of assess what was going on and how people felt, and then he would kind of meld into that environment. So because of that, he was able to put people at ease, and I think that was his secret, that he was able to really transform into whatever situation he was in make people feel at ease because of that. And so then they would open up. Um, he would talk to them like human beings. You know, he would, he would talk to them at, on their level, depending on where he was. So he never appeared superior or looking down at anybody. He always was at their level. And I think that helped 
a lot of people feel very comfortable around Jim. And he always had his camera as well. And so one of the, the things about Jim is he used the natural light and he didn't, you know, have backdrops and big floodlights and things like that. So he always wore his cameras around his neck. So when he came into a situation, he would start talking and then immediately put his camera and start taking pictures of the people. So I think it disarmed them right away and they became used to Jim just talking and photographing. And so they forgot that the camera was there. And I think that was a skill that, that Jim had learned that really um, helped him blend in to wherever he was. I got the, the, the recent book um, that was released in, along with the, with the film. And I did not know about that early work, the street photography work that he was doing in the Fillmore district, which was then the black community. Right. And that was really fascinating. I'm a street photographer and seeing that work, it gave me a better understanding of what made him a good photographer. Tell me about how, how aware were you of that early work before, you know, you became responsible for, for the archive? I was aware of some of it, but not all of it. Jim did a, a wonderful photo documentary uh, story on poverty in America, which was in Hazard, Kentucky. Um, he went to a coal mining um, town. The, the photographs, he, he became friends with the coal miners and they were really poor. I mean, they, a lot of their homes were made out of cardboard and they had sores on their faces and it looked like soot, but they were actually sores from inhaling the coal and it caused sores on their faces. But Jim um, befriended them and really got to know them and they opened up and they felt at ease and some, and the photographs are just beautiful. I mean, it's almost, this was a, uh, 1963 but when you look at those photographs you think of Dorothea Lange and you think of you know the Dust Bowl and it's very reminiscent of that. He also photographed the people in New York City when JFK was shot and killed. Um, he was in the Time Life building. They said to all the photographers just go down into the street and photograph people's faces and reactions and those are just incredible. The disbelief and just, you know, sadness expressed in the faces that, that Jim was able to catch. So I knew about those pieces of work because Jim would talk about them and he, um, he printed them so you could see them. But I wasn't aware of the extent of his street photography until he died in 2010. And I really um, started going through the archive and recording things and um, looking through it. I, I kind of felt like an archaeologist sometimes at a historical, you know, dig and you find these treasures that you just weren't expecting. And that's when I discovered a lot of his early street photography, um, not only in San Francisco, but in New York, because Jim did live in New York for uh, two years. So there's some amazing uh, street photography of little kids. Jim, who knew? <laughs> Jim never had children. And because he was gruff and so loud, you know, people didn't think he liked children or would have ever had children. I don't know if that's necessarily true or not. I think because photography was his first love, it was so consuming that he really didn't have time for anybody else except photography. 
but I think he did want children, and I think his way of having children and collecting them was by photographing them. And I, and I found that out when I was going through the archive, and it was just, to me, it was fascinating to see all these children um, that he photographed. And he went onto the subway when he was in New York and did a lot of um, photography of the subway down there and, and into restaurants. And so it really showed another side of Jim that I wanted to share with the world because I think most people perceive him as just a rock and roll music photographer and they didn't know this whole other side of Jim. You know, Jim, Jim could be his own roadblock a lot of times. And so um, by Jim being out of the way and not being the roadblock, I'm able to really get that part of his archive out into the world and share it with people because it is so important. I think, you know, when Jim was photographing, he was photographing pieces of history that were happening without really realizing what was happening at the time. And so he would always refer to himself as a reporter with a camera. He really thought of himself as a photojournalist, not as a rock and roll photographer, um, but as a photojournalist documenting these pieces of history. And a lot of that we're looking back now, 50 years later, um, at these pieces, at these moments that happened. And a lot of it is really relevant right now as well. I mean, you know, he was in Mississippi in 1964 when the SNCC went down, the Freedom Riders went down to help sign up blacks to vote. You know, now here we are 50 years later and voting rights are threatened to be taken away again. It's something that we didn't think would happen, but it did. So I, I, I think, you know, they are very relevant events that we can look at today and, and understand um, and learn from, from the photographs that Jim took. Did the time that you had to go through that work and sort of take it in, did it create a new or more nuanced understanding of his approach, his, his style? It did. I mean, like I said, there, he, was, he was very chameleon-like. When he was with the rock and rollers, of course, he'd, you know, wow, be one of the guys and, you know, <laughs> be tough and, and rough. But, but then there was this very sensitive, intimate side that comes across in, in the street photography and the, and the photographing of children and, and um, you know, just what was surrounding him to be open to that experience and see little things that a number of people may not see. You know, for example, the peace sign. Um, he had a whole three by five card with the peace symbol on it with all the corresponding uh, rolls of film that he had photographed the peace symbol. So, you know, some people would have just looked at it and walked, you know, a peace sign scrolled on the concrete, just looked at it and walked away. But Jim saw that and he thought it was important enough to document. And so that says a lot, you know, he, he saw this symbol that may, most people would just walk past. And he thought to himself, you know, this is, I think this is something important. So he documented it. Um, so it goes back to what I was saying that I think Jim had always had a curious eye. He was always looking, you know, and, and yeah. always looking at everything around him. I recently returned from Montana to attend the first annual Curious Fest. 
held by our friends at the Curious Society. This member-supported nonprofit has created an organization devoted to the work of today's best photojournalists and documentary photographers. If you have a passion for telling stories with photographs, you can start being a part of this community by joining in on their weekly hangouts on Clubhouse every Tuesday. Find out more by visiting their website at CuriousSociety.org. This month's book selection from the Charcoal Book Club demonstrates what makes this service so special. Joyrider by photographer Ross McDonald beautifully showcases his photographs documenting the Bollywood housing estate in Dublin, Ireland. Ross photographed the final years of a failed public housing development and its impact on a generation of youth. The story and the images are stunning and thought-provoking and demonstrate what's possible when a photographer knows how to tell a story with pictures. Joyrider is one of many first edition monographs offered by the Charcoal Book Club, which works with some of the best photographers that are out there. And it's also a flexible service because if you don't like that month's release, you can choose another of their titles of a similar value. They offer free shipping to the US, Canada, and the UK. It's subsidized elsewhere. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today and remember to use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. I had an opportunity, opportunity uh, to see a Walker Evans retrospective, yeah. and it went all the way from his beginnings all the way to the end. And it was a very large exhibit in, in Paris. And it was really interesting because I had seen Walker Evans' work you know, over well, several decades. But this is the first time that I actually had a chance to sort of walk through and recognize the development and the changes that happened during different periods of his photographic life. What did you discover along those lines with Jim's work? Well, I think, like I said, he took, he took pictures of people and he captured the the that who that person was and he was able to take that into his later photography when he was doing music when he was doing live concert shots he was able to not only photograph these godlike figures of of rock and roll and music but he was also able to strip them down to human beings kind of take the facade off and really show them as what they were they're just mere mortals like you and i and you know backstage um they're bored when they're waiting to go out to a concert you know they're they're not they're they're bored i mean there's a couple photos when jim was on the stone 72 tour for the rest west coast leg where mick jagger is doing yoga on the carpet so you know he he was able to really capture the human side of people as well and strip away that that facade there are several images in there where i just really love his compositions because he's he's known a lot for these iconic images like you know hendrix during the sound check playing that or when he's burning his burning his guitar but there's one image uh, that he took of, of the Rolling Stones, and there's someone in the foreground in the right hand of the frame. I'm not sure who it was, 
but there was a mirror on the left-hand side of the frame that revealed the other people in the room. And I love that shot yeah. because he was revealing a person being really relaxed in front of the camera, but he was providing a wonderful context for what was happening. Yeah. And there are several images in the book where that photojournalistic sense yeah. of not just focusing on the person, but telling a story is yeah. really evident. Um, of those true. types of, 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 of those types of images, because I, I heard in another interview, we were talking about how I often use mirrors to sort of create that sort of sense of space. But, but talk to me about his sense of storytelling, not just his ability to be able to create individual great photographs of, you know, an, uh, of a person or a band. Yeah, I think he, he used, to your point, he used what was around him to help tell the story. So if that was a mirror or if it was a window, a reflection in the window that he saw, um, I think he, he was able to use what was around him to, to tell that story, not just the person, but everything that was around, uh, around them. Like when JFK was shot, you know, there's... It's surrounded by people holding up a, a newspaper saying JFK was shot, you know, the president has been shot and he's he's dead. But you look at all the people in that image as well, and I mean it's you've got everybody, you've got you've got black, you've got white, you've got women, you've got men, you've got young, you've got old. So that also helps tell the story as well because you're using all of those people that show, shows you the generations of different people that were affected by the president being shot. So I think he was a genius in that sense that he really took every every element around him to help tell that story or, or bring some humor into it. Um, in, the, in the hate book, um, there's a, a picture of an old couple in front of a magazine stand, but it's for um, nude magazines where the couple had shot from behind. So you see this old couple and then you see them looking at the magazines of, of nude women. And there's, mm -hmm. there's such a humor in there. Um, and I think that's what Jim was able to do by using what was um, around that person to tell the story. Yeah, there's a great image. I think they're in um, like a cafe or a diner, and there are these three white women that are closely yeah. sitting together. And at the end, there's an older black man who sort of turned away from them looking away, and they're right. not interacting at all. And yeah. man, that image is so impactful. Right. And us, and for me as a person of color, I, 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 the way he was sitting there, you know, the choice to you know, face away from there to not make eye contact, but also right. to sort of establish himself as not being a threat. Right. <laughs> Something I have, I've had to do or that I've yeah. chosen to do. And I yeah. saw that photograph and it was, it was really impactful for, for me to see yeah. that Jim recognized that moment in right. a way that I think a lot of other photographers wouldn't. Right. And it also, and, and to your point, I mean, me being a white woman, I, I felt that what was happening there, I felt that African-American man's 
the intensity of that situation. And I think that's what Jim was so good at is capturing that moment, but also having the viewer feel as if they're there mm -hmm. and they're experiencing that with those people. And that, that is what makes it so impactful, I think, is the emotion that you feel in that yeah. photograph. Yeah, because that, that is not an easy photograph. No. It's not, it's not any, I, I was almost going to say that it's not an easy photograph to make. What it is, yeah. what's more difficult is to recognize that it is a photograph. Yeah, yeah. Because of, of what, because of, of the qualities we just described. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of young photographers want to assist or work for a, uh, an experienced photographer because they think they'll learn so much, especially in terms of shooting. Yeah. But one of the gifts that you can have is learning how to read a photograph. Right. Learn how to look at a photograph and evaluate it. Tell me how Jim, especially looking at his work, taught you just that. I think he taught me, again, to be in that moment and to kind of immerse yourself in there so that it's, it's a genuine moment. It's not a staged moment. And that that's what Jim was as really good at, and I and I think I watched him. Sometimes there were a lot of young photographers that would call Jim up and say, "Can can I come by and show you my portfolio? Will you look at it?" And Jim always said, "Absolutely," um, and he never wanted to discourage anybody, even if they were not great photographers. He didn't want to discourage them. So uh, I saw one time there was a young photographer who was trying to be a, a concert photographer and showed him live concert shots that he had taken what jim would say is i love the crowd shots that you're doing the expressions of the people in the crowds are great i think you should really concentrate on that so rather than discourage mm -hmm. them from uh you know being a live concert photographer he i think he always would find something positive and and you know look at the photograph as its own story like we were saying and what does that story tell you and and what what can you pull out of it and that's that's i think that's important when when you look at a photograph don't just look at the subject but to look at everything else that's around that subject that helps complete and tell that story um and and i think that's that's what i've learned from jim and looking through his archive especially his early work i mean he really was able to do that um from the start you know and and jim was self-taught a lot of people don't realize that that he was self-taught and the way he taught himself was he literally bought a leica camera in 1959 which is one of the hardest cameras to learn how to use because it's a viewfinder, right? And you load the film from the bottom. Um, so Jim just taught himself and he went out into the streets of San Francisco and just photographed what he saw. And I think that's, that's how he was able to translate and teach himself, well, not teach himself, but sh really show what we were talking about in his later work, the humanity, and to be able to tell a story is he just did it. And, and he was very observant and, and saw what was happening. By the time you, you came on board, he wasn't actively shooting as much. Yeah. Um, can you explain why that was the case? And what, you, what were you helping him with during those early years? When, uh, yeah, when I met Jim, he, he really wasn't photographing that much anymore because the whole music 
um, scene had changed. I mean, it was really, you had managers and handlers and they, they wanted to control the situation, how musicians looked or celebrities looked. And Jim hated that. I mean, he really, really hated that. So it drove him away. He didn't want to not have control of the situation. And so he'd rather not photograph than be told how to photograph something and what he had to do. Um, so when I, I met him, but he, oddly enough, not oddly enough, he still, he was in the habit of always having a camera around his neck whenever he left or on his shoulder whenever he left the house because he had just, that was part of him that he did. He never wanted to miss anything. So even if we would be, you know, walking down the street to go have lunch, he would take his camera and, and put it on his shoulder. And, you know, rarely would he take a photograph, but he always wanted to have it there just in case he saw something. Um, and I think that was a, that was an important thing that I, I learned from him is, is as a photographer, you should always have your camera with you because you never know what you're going to miss, um, you know, even if you're just walking down to have lunch. But, uh, but what Jim did do was tell me stories. And so what we, we would do is go through his photographs and, and his archive, and he would share with me the stories that, you know, that happened during his lifetime through his, his photography. And to me, that was important that he was able to share that kind of oral history because so many times when a, you know, when a photographer dies, that oral history is lost. So I really appreciated that he, he shared that with me. And he was, he was actually very organized. A lot of people uh, don't realize how organized Jim was, but he uh, learned very early on that he would take a three, he would number every roll of film and number the corresponding proof sheet starting at one, and when he died, there were over 16,000 rolls of 35 millimeter black and white film. And he would put the subject's name and then every corresponding piece of film that had that person on it, he would write it down. And I think that's also because he was a working photographer. So if Rolling Stone called up and said, what do you have on Jimi Hendrix? He could then take up that three by five card on Jimi Hendrix and immediately find what he had on Jimi Hendrix. And I think a lot of people forget that working photographers back then, that's how they, they lived. I mean, they had to work to survive, you know, and this was way before he was selling his photography in galleries. Um, so he really, if he didn't work, he, he may not have eaten that day. You know, it, he had to be organized. And uh, thankfully he was for me because it's, it's, you know, it's much easier for me to, to go through an organized archive and find things. So were you helping him when a magazine would call that wanted rights to be able to use an image or so is that what you were primarily yeah. doing initially? Yes, yes, yes. I was, I was pretty much, you know, um, helping him with, I would pull the proof and negative. I would take it to the printer you know, pick it up, would help him, you pack it up to go to the gallery, whoever, if somebody bought it, or go to the, you know, send it out to a magazine. Um, so a lot of it was that. And, you know, when he was older, too, he didn't necessarily want to do that anymore. So that's where, where I came in. And, you know, Jim could be cranky, and he could uh, be cantankerous. Um, and so I kind of 
was the in-between there. If things got tense, I would kind of take over and <laughs> diffuse, <laughs> diffuse the situation. Um, tell, me, tell me about the, the film. How long had that been, you know, in the ether as an idea, and how did it finally come about? Um, even when, when Jim was alive, people wanted to do a documentary, but it just never happened, partly because what I said, Jim was his own worst enemy and, and would get in the way, and so it never really did happen. And then uh, when Jim died in 2010, there was a lot of interest, but nothing really ever transpired from that. So when I met Alfred George Bailey, actually at Leica in London, we were doing a, a show on Jim's jazz, um, we started talking and Alfred had done a, um, a film on Gregory Porter, who's a jazz musician. And he said, have you ever thought about doing a, a documentary on Jim? And I said, yes, I have. It's just never worked out. And he said, well, you know, can we keep talking? I'd like to maybe do it. And so we kept corresponding and talking and it just came together actually very quickly. Our producer, Tatiana Kennedy, is also from uh, the UK and she had worked with the BBC. So she was very uh, knowledgeable and knew how to do documentaries. And so we actually just started right in and uh, we completed the documentary in eight months. Wow. I know. It was just fast and furious. And I think, quite honestly, that's it just because we went and we did it and we photographed. And, you know, um, we didn't have a huge crew. It was literally Alfred George Bailey, Tatiana, and myself. And Alfred used a Leica SLR and we used two of Jim's lenses. So we used a 35 oh. millimeter lens and a 50 millimeter lens, which is, I love that we did that because you're actually looking through Jim's eyes to document his work. And I, and I think because we were such a bare bones crew, it disarmed people and we were able to get in and we were able to, to really have people feel it is kind of like Jim, you know, learning from Jim yeah. that <laughs> the less you have, um, the more these people will be. But yeah, we ha and we had 850, fo over 850 photographs in the documentary. We had over 1800 cuts um, in the documentary. And we had an amazing editor, Adam Biskupski, who is Scottish and he lives in the UK too. But he was, he was really just such an amazing editor in helping weave the story together. And one of the things that I love that we were able to do is not only show all these photographs full bleed on the screen, which is amazing, but also weave through archival footage. So we found, you know, old, some old footage of Jim being interviewed in 1978. So you see a young Jim. And then um, we also had footage of him later in life. So we kind of weaved that throughout the whole documentary, as well as um, we had an original score from another very talented Ian Arbor, who is, a, is British as well. And he's written a lot of music for TV and, and movies. Um, and he actually went to Budapest to, and had a 12-piece 12 12 orchestra do a lot of the original score. So you get 
a lot of cellos and flutes and violins. And so you get that feeling of Jim being an immigrant from, you know, this country with these different musical instruments in the background. And so I just think we had a, a great team and everybody who was part of it was there because they they didn't necessarily know Jim when he was alive, the, the crew that, that was there, but they felt like they knew him through his photography and they knew how important it was and really wanted to honor his legacy. And that was really the whole purpose of the documentary was to really honor Jim Marshall's legacy and his children because he didn't have any children and his children really was his whole body of work. And, uh, and so we were honoring Jim and his children and really sharing it with the world. And I'm really proud of it. I think we did a good job. Oh, you did a great job because I had, I had a great sense of the man as a result of the work. Right. You know? And so, so you, you succeeded um, really with that. And I, I have to commend everybody involved in it, especially because the one thing that stood out for me is there was not an abundance of archival material of Jim right. in terms right. of video or audio or film interviews at all. And right. when I finished going to the film, I'm going, oh, my God, they they did an amazing job. Because usually when you're doing a profile on someone who's very high profile, there's an abundance of content available right. that you can sort of pull through. And you guys didn't have that, but you nevertheless succeeded in, in producing a really a wonderful film about a great photographer. And I, I watch a lot of content and this was easily one of my one of my favorites. Not just because I love Jim Marshall's work. <laughs> Whether you earn a living as a photographer or simply practice it for the sheer joy of it, LensRentals.com is there to help. Because let's face it, there are times when you need a specific piece of equipment, but you can't justify purchasing it outright. That's when renting a specific lens or camera is the best solution. LensRentals.com provides the means for you to do just that with a vast selection of lenses, cameras, and accessories for you to rent and play with. They offer a straightforward way to receive or return anything you want for an affordable and reasonable price. Check out their inventory and save 10% on your first order when you sign up for their newsletter at lensrentals.com forward slash newsletter. And thanks to all of you who continue to support the Candor Frame financially. Your contributions, both big and small, make a huge difference. If you haven't become a Patreon supporter yet, it's easy to do. You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Just $5 a month from you makes a huge difference. Thank you so much for your continued support. Um, yeah. One of the yeah. things you talk about in, in the documentary is, is his addiction. Yeah. And do you think, because by the time you met him, he wasn't actively working as much. And by looking at the photographs, you could see that he was part of a community, part of a world. And do you think that the loss of that, to some degree, m may explain why his d addiction became progressively worse? Yeah, I, 
Yeah, Jim, I mean, you know, sometimes I think because he was so sensitive, to numb some, some of that sensitivity, he got in, involved in drugs and alcohol. Um, and, it, you know, it was in the late 60s and into the 70s, but cocaine really consumed his life for a while. And that was the major downfall of Jim. And in the documentary, you can see that, but he, he fights his way back. But yeah, his addiction really just took over his, his entire life. And I think it was not an easy time for him, but he, he worked through it. And I think when I met Jim, he was still, <laughs> he, was, he was still doing cocaine, a lot of cocaine. And he didn't stop until the age of 70, um, which was four years before he died. And I think a lot of it was because he felt that he didn't have a lot of friends and support. And he was wrong. He was really wrong. There were a lot of people that loved him and that were friends of his. And he just, he, he didn't realize that. And I, and the sad thing is towards the end of his life, when he did stop doing cocaine and he did start really feeling again and seeing that people loved his work and that they really related to it and that it was important, he just started feeling that. And then he died. Mm -hmm. um, but it yeah, it, it was tough, you know, and that, that's true. A lot of creative people, I think because they do, they are so sensitive and they feel these things, they, they tend to try and isolate themselves and numb it out through uh, drugs and alcohol. Yeah, but that, that was Jim. Yeah, and you know, addiction is, is is terrible not only for the person who's addicted, but you know, the yeah. family and friends of the person who's the addict. Um, yeah. You were with him for a very long time, um, yeah. and it couldn't have been easy for you to see somebody that you cared about so much, you know, yeah. destroying themselves in 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 that way. It was hard. Yeah. yeah. So how, you know, <laughs> what did you do to sort of to, 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 to take care of yourself enough that you were able to? not only stay and work with him, but also right. not, you know, have your, your own kind of meltdown. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm very fortunate that um, my, my wife and I have been together for 30 years. Oh, so great. I had a very stable, loving home to come home to <laughs> after I was working with Jim and, you know, really be able to, decompress and and talk about what was happening with Benita who is is my wife and and so I think I was very very fortunate in that sense that I had that I don't I don't know if I would have been able to to deal with it if if I had not had somebody that I could talk with and and decompress with you know so I, I am very very fortunate in that sense that I had I had that support yeah that's wonderful yeah. Um, you know, you get you had you and Jim had discussions about the fact that he was going to leave his archive, his work in your hands after he was um, he was gone. But what you know, what that might look like when the person is still alive is one thing. But once they're gone and and the reality of it is right there, uh, what did you have to? deal with? What were some of the challenges you faced in terms of ensuring that his legacy lived on? It was hard. It was tough. Um, 
first of all, because I'm a woman and, you know, the, the art world and photography is very male dominated. So for me, right off the bat, it was hard because there were a lot of people who said, well, you're just, you were just his female assistant, right? And their first reaction was, oh, you must have slept with him. <laughs> I said, well, um, no, and I'm gay, so that was not an option. But, you know, that, that, was, that was their first reaction. You're a woman, you must have slept with him, and that's why he left you his archive. Um, so that was, that was an intense time. And also Jim was extremely protective of his copyright and of his photography when he was alive. Um, and he would not let people violate that. And he would go after people who, who misused his images or violated his copyright and used it without asking him or, you know. So that was very important to him. So for me, it was very important to show that somebody, even though Jim was gone, there still is somebody there who is going to protect his, his photography and his copyright just as fiercely as if he were alive. So, you know, out of the gate, we had to really prove that, you know, we were there and that we were going to, and that if you tried to illegally use Jim's photographs, we would come after you too. Um, and I think it was important to really set that down early on so that people would still be afraid of using Jim's images um, without permission. Um, but that was hard. I mean, it was hard. It was very, very tough to do um, because there, there is no manual. There is, is nothing written how to take care of a photographer's archive once they, they're gone. So a lot of it I had to really do myself and be strong and kind of find my, my way through it. But for, for me, um, it was something I had to do because I made a promise to my friend that I would care for his children when he was gone, and that's what I was going to do. It's, it's, it's an amazing task, but it's a wonderful way to honor his memory and his work. Yeah. Um, yeah. You obviously had a wonderful friendship with him while he was alive. Yeah. What do you miss most about him? I miss Jim's humor. A lot of people, you know, thought that Jim was just this coked out guy. He, he, was, he wasn't. I mean, he was a really intelligent man. He would read the New York Times um, first page to the end of the page every single day along with the, you know, San Francisco Chronicle. I mean, he was, he was very intelligent, very aware of what was going on. Um, and you could talk to him about a lot of different things. And, and he always had this persona of being a uh, Republican, a conservative Republican who loved guns and, you know, your rights. But that was just a facade. And so, you know, to me, it, it was funny sometimes to pull that away and say, you don't realize that that is just not Jim. <laughs> I mean, he really is this, you know, liberal guy. Uh, and, and, you know, when, when Obama was elected president, he cried, he was happy. He was like, this is amazing to have the first African American man be president of the United States. I mean, he just thought that was amazing. And, and, you know, <laughs> Jim from the outside, most people would be like, what? No, yeah. that can't be. Yeah. Especially when you hear the stories about him and guns and, yeah, oh, you know, yeah. it's, it, you may have been a small guy, but very intimidating, as I indicated yes, in the yes. beginning of my, my conversation with you. 
But yeah. you know, it, it kind of makes sense that you know he was he was very felt very vulnerable, and that that this yeah. was sort of an outside, outsized persona. Yeah, you know. That, well, and that, I also think he got he felt like that was the persona that he built, so he felt like he had to keep it up all the time. I think that could be very exhausting as well. Because, you know, people expected that crazy gun-toting guy to be there 24-7. You know, he sometimes he just wanted to go home and watch the TV, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or read a book and, and not have that persona. And I think it was hard for him sometimes to, to drop that persona. I mean, I, he loved the movie De Lovely with Kevin Klein and... Um, I can't remember, was Ashley Judd in it? But he, he, it was, a you know, the story of Cole Porter. And he loved that. And so he would call me up at two in the morning and he would say, Davis, because he called me Davis, not Amelia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Davis, what are you doing right now? I said, Jim, it's two o'clock in the morning. What do you think I'm doing? He said, you know, there's this great, movie on the TV. He goes, come over here now, you and Benita, my wife, come over here and watch it with me. So we'd trape over at two in the morning, sit at Jim's apartment and watch the movie with him. So, you know, he, he, he was like having a child, actually. (laughs) 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 And I would call him my man child (laughs) because he really was. But you know that was Jim, and and he, you know, he he was lonely, and he and he and he craved companionship, and and I knew that, and and so for me it was okay, and and for Benita it was okay to do that, um, that he felt comfortable enough that <laughs> to call us at two in the morning and say, get over here, and watch this movie with me. <laughs> I love that. Well, my last question that I ask, ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh, boy, that is a toughie. Well, you know, I, I, I didn't recently discover him, but one of Jim's really all-time favorite photographers was um, Robert Kappa. Mm. And it was because he was a wartime photographer, and um, he, again, documented pieces of history, I think, that were very hard to look at, what, but were very important to look at, and told a story. Um, and I think, to me, I look at those, those photographs, and I, th- I think of Jim as well, because he, he sometimes felt like he was going into battle, too. He was going in there to tell a story and take these pictures. And especially they may not be easy to look at, but you needed to record them. Like the three white women and the African-American man at the lunch counter. You know, it's, it's hard to look at it. It makes you feel uncomfortable, but you need to look at it because, you know, it will spark a conversation. And that's what it's, it's about, you know, whether we agree on the, the issue or not, it's, it's about coming together and really telling a story and starting a dialogue. And I think that's what, what Jim's photography did. And I, and I think, you know, Robert Kappa, his stuff was pretty intense. 
Yeah. But again, you know, it, it's it's important. It's important stuff to look at. Well, Amelia, thank you for sharing uh, yours and Jim's story with us. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I did too. And thank you so much. I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me about my friend. <laughs> Thanks to Amelia Davis for joining us. Find out more about the work of Jim Marshall by visiting Jim Marshall Photography, LLC.com. The documentary, Show Me the Picture, the Story of Jim Marshall, is now available for purchase and streaming. And a special thanks to Kira Carnani from Leica America for her help in making this interview possible. And remember to check out the Curious Society at CuriousSociety.org. I received the first issue of their magazine, which you can purchase today, even without a membership. If you want a taste of the great work you'll be helping to support, that would be a great start. And you'll be contributing to an organization of creatives that are deserving of your support. Your thoughts and feelings about this show matter. If you haven't already, please write a review on Apple Podcasts or any other service you use to listen to podcasts. It helps us to stand out among the many thousands of podcasts that are out there. Your voice makes a difference. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Ruben Robles for his recent contribution. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candor Frame app, available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candor Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.